0: Hello, and welcome back to our podcast. Very pleased to have you here with us as we continue our discussion on Deuteronomy. My name's Cameron.
1: G'day, my name's Ken. And I'm Luke. And I'm Lachlan.
0: Now, the, the Seventh-day Adventist lesson quarterly is on the book of Deuteronomy, and uh, we, we actually didn't scan ahead to sort of map it, things out as we went. We've just sort of been tracking through the book uh, loosely in sync with the lesson. We, we did do a bit of scanning, and Locke, we discovered that uh, there's substantial passages missing from the Seventh, seventh Adventist quarterly dis- discussion.
2: There appear to be just one or two gaps. Um, so it, the, the discussion for, for this week in the lesson quarterly is focused on Deuteronomy 10, and is quite a good discussion, such a good discussion, in fact, that we preempted it by and large, in our previous episode.
0: They're following us from in front lot. They 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 are.
2: <laughs> I can think of all sorts of paranoid responses to that. <laughs> but but the looking forward, there seems to be um a couple of weeks exploring parts of or themes out of Deuteronomy 10, which I think is, is actually warranted. It's a it's a great part of Deuteronomy. And then there seems to be a little bit of a gap where the for a few weeks, the lesson quarterly wanders in the wilderness, if I can express it that way. And then it jumps back into Deuteronomy in chapter 30. So for some reason, between Deuteronomy 10 and Deuteronomy 30, there's there's either nothing of value or something to hide. Oh,
0: that's a challenge. <laughs> challenge accepted. We're going to jump into Deuteronomy 12. So this, this doesn't align with the lesson quarterly, but uh, we're going to do it anyway. Uh, So Deuteronomy 12 has a theme, and we're not going to read the whole chapter. I'm going to read verses uh, 4 to 7, and the theme here is about the place of worship. We're going to develop this theme and then jump ahead to see how it actually played out when they entered the the promised land, because there's a really interesting story that has got, I think, food for some good discussion. So uh, let me read these verses. Uh, You must not worship the Lord your God in their way, that is, in the way of the surrounding nations who had um, idols and Asherah poles all over the place. Uh, but you are to seek the place the Lord your God will choose from among all your tribes to put his name there for his dwelling. To that place you must go. There bring your burnt offerings and your sacrifices, your tithe and special gifts, what you have vowed to give and your free will offerings and the firstborn of your herds and flocks. There in the presence of the Lord your God, you and your family shall eat and shall rejoice in everything you have put your hand to because the Lord your God has blessed you. So before we move on, there's just some interesting ideas here. It was never stressed or pointed out to me at all growing up that the vast majority of sacrifices were eaten Mm. by the people.
3: Yeah,
2: it never pointed out to me either. Is that because some of the more ceremonial sacrifices like for example the day of atonement uh, may maybe weren't that they were large communal activities and not sufficient meat to s- sort of feed the whole group or for various reasons I'd have to go and learn about that
3: well what, what I'm immediately wondering is is if, is this not the origin of our our custom of saying grace before a meal this connection between maybe. the food that we have to eat and and our worship of of a God that uh, cares for us.
0: The equivalent would be uh, to say to people at church, "All right, we've got a special offering today. We all want you to put your money in, and we're going to um, use this money to eat out. We're going to take the whole church out to a restaurant." Yeah. And.
3: I I like this new form of church service. Ken. Yeah, and then
0: <laughs> and then those people give what they can, and the people who have lots give lots, and you're subsidising. It's a day where you can help. The church be equal as a family, uh, because obviously people who are very rich would have been bringing more animals, um, and I imagine—I'm not sure—it doesn't explicitly say, I guess, but I imagine there would have been, this would have been sh- shared around. You and your families shall eat and shall rejoice in everything. Um, so it's a communal sort of thing. And there's actually an interesting twist in this. <clears throat> Verses twenty, luck. Do you want to read this? Uh, twenty v- through to twenty-two.
2: Yeah, well, I was just reading this because I was wondering about what was it in the verses that you read out that made it so obvious that they that they ate their offerings. And it does say in verse 7, there in the presence of the Lord your God, you and your families shall eat and rejoice in everything you have put your hand to. Um, that, that could be read as saying you shall eat, but not necessarily eat of these offerings that you have brought. But the chapter does go on to make it a bit more obvious. And even in... Um, you know, verse 16, verse 17, you must not eat these these offerings, essentially. You must not eat them in your own towns. You must not eat in your own towns the tithe of your grain and new wine and olive oil or the firstborn of your herds and flocks or whatever you have vowed to give. Instead, you are to eat them in the presence of the Lord your God at the place the Lord your God will choose. So it's, it's pretty explicit down there in verse 16, 17, 18. So here we are in verse 20. When the Lord your God has enlarged your territory, as he has promised you, and you crave meat and say, I would like some meat, then you may eat as much of it as you want. If the place where the Lord your God chooses to put his name is too far away from you, you may slaughter animals from the herds and flocks as the Lord has given you, as I have commanded you. And in your own towns, you may eat as much of them as you want. Eat them as you would gazelle or deer. Both the ceremonially unclean and clean may eat.
0: Yeah. So, so what this is saying, what this is saying, is if you're if you live too far away, you're in a remote community and you don't have a local church, you should take your tithe money and spend it in the community that you're part of.
3: Mm. <laughs> yes, there's there's a very strong theme of social justice in it, isn't there? I said I wouldn't, but I can't help myself. Yeah. Well, <laughs> <laughs> that that idea that everybody brings what they have and then shares it equally as a form of worship. Is very consistent with what we know of the character of God mm-hmm. from what we've been reading in Deuteronomy, what we were reading in in, mm. in Proverbs, um, what what you read in the prophets. You know, it is it is all pointing towards the idea that the right and proper way to worship God is to care for others.
2: Well, as you say that, I, I've just realised a connection here I've never seen before. We don't have to explore it at length. How did the stories of Jesus feeding the multitude begin? well, what do you have? Mm. What what do we actually have? Let's bring it. Let's all have it together. Let's share it communally. Mm. It seems as if it is using, it's invoking this Mm. kind of image of communal feasting on the offerings brought to God. That's a cool idea.
0: Mm.
1: It's interesting. Uh, I I want to just explore this development. Uh, So the starting point in verse 4 Uh, is that you must not worship the Lord your God in the way of those who were in the land uh, when you arrived. Um, So break down all their altars and smash all the things. Don't worship that way. Mm. Uh, Then the next thing is verse 8, which is also a don't do it a particular way. Uh, Don't do it as we are now doing it. I think that's an interesting um, observation as well. Um, That is, everyone according to his own desire um, or uh, everyone as they see fit. Uh, And the reason you're doing it that way is because you haven't yet arrived where the inheritance of God uh, is going to be made available to you. But then you're going to cross the Jordan. And when you've crossed the Jordan you are to do everything in the one spot that God has set aside. Except that you can eat as much as you like in your own towns, verse 15, um, uh, according to the blessing the Lord your God gives you, um, but don't eat the tithe and the new wine and the oil of the firstborn. So don't eat the stuff that's um, particularly dedicated, set aside, that's set aside for God there. Yeah. In your own towns um, uh but again in verse 20 uh, when you want something to eat, eat it. it's good. Uh, this is what God has given me <laughs> uh and that but then well but actually you know if you're too far away, uh, that's okay too. You can just make sure that you um, uh, you acknowledge or you use this part that's dedicated to God for good things
2: it's a, mm. it's almost as if he's opening with a really good intention to lay down quite an important rule and as he's going along writing it he keeps thinking you know there's a couple of exceptions that i have really got <laughs> to account it's for be really
0: hard for everyone <laughs> to get to this no, one place nobody expects the Spanish inquisition <laughs> um, um, exactly our chief our chief weapon is surprise. <laughs> Surprise and fear. Uh, uh, Our two, uh, two chief weapons are surprise, fear, and fanatical devote. Three. Our uh, three. <laughs>
1: uh, but I'm going to finish it all off in verse 28 with, be careful to obey all these regulations I'm giving you so that it may always go well with you. I'm not exactly sure which one of those I'm meant to be obeying in any given situation, but I must obey them all.
0: The rules are different for different situations. Perhaps it's not Moses dithering around. Perhaps he's being peppered by interruptions. And mm. so you are to take this. You, you in the back. You in the back. Well, I, I, I'm planning on settling in the hillcut. All right. All right. All right. Yeah. We'll make adjustments for that. Is everyone is everyone yeah. happy now? Oh no 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 no. I've got I've got an objection.
2: Ken, there was something that you said that um, jumped out at me at the start of this. There's a contrast very clear, and this is never given any extra nuance through the rest of the chapter. It's very clear. You are mm. not you are not to do this in the way of the uh, that the country's that the nations already there do worship their gods. And the Asherah poles and um, altars, This is this is a bit reading in. But so much of the surrounding religions are about trying to bring the blessing of the gods, whether it's fertility or rain or whatever it might be. But notice what the framework is in verse 7. You are you are to rejoice in everything you've put your hand to, because the Lord your God has blessed you. This is not a worship of a god trying to persuade the god to supply blessings. This is a worship in response to the blessings the mm. god has
0: provided. Look, I think that's really important, and,
1: and that's very clearly borne out um, in in the rest of uh, the passage, because it talks about. Uh, sorry, I'm just looking for it here. I, I, I know there's an earlier bit. Ah. Um, uh, Verse fifteen: uh, Slaughter your animals in any of your towns and eat as much of the meat as you want, as if it were gazelle or deer, according to the blessing the Lord your God gives you. Um, and then, in again, in verse twenty, when the Lord your God has enlarged your territory as He promised you. Uh, so these are mm. these are things; these are promises of God, and uh, that carry with them a real certainty.
0: All right, we, we might come back to some of these themes if we have time, but I really want to jump across now to have a look at a, a way, one way that this particular instruction played out as they entered the promised land. And it's a story from the book of Joshua that I read the other day and, and couldn't remember reading. And it centers very much on this uh, emphatic declaration by Moses that you are to select one place to worship God. So let's jump across to the book of Joshua, and we're going to go to uh, chapter 22 and uh, start reading at verse 10, and we'll read through to the end of the chapter. I might might kick us off. And when the people came to the region of the Jordan that is the land of Canaan, the people of Reuben and the people of Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh built there an altar by the Jordan, an altar of imposing size. And the people of Israel heard it and said, behold, the people of Reuben and the people of Gad and the half tribe of Manasseh have built the altar at the frontier of the land of Canaan in the region about the Jordan on the side that belongs to the people of Israel. Because, of course, I think those three, those tribes were allotted land on the other side of the Jordan. That's
1: my recollection.
0: And they've built an altar on the, on, on the side of the Jordan not belonging to them. And they've built an altar. And when the people heard of it, the whole assembly of the people of Israel gathered at at Shiloh to make war against them.
1: So the Israelites sent Phineas, son of Eliezer, the priest, to the land of Gilead, to Reuben, Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh. (laughs) I always laugh when I read about the half-tribe of Manasseh, uh, sort of like this incomplete tribe. I I I think that's because they're the sons of Joseph, aren't they?
0: But Ken, it's an important point. How many tribes of Israel were there?
1: Well, according to the book that I read, The Autobiography of God, um, there were, in fact, 13 tribes. Um, The 13th tribe was the tribe of Trevor, um, and they got lost when they were wandering in the wilderness. And uh, so the tribe of Trevor is actually known as the Lost Tribe of Israel. I think that could be apocryphal.
0: So, (laughs) (laughs) Ken, there were...
3: Sounds right to me.
0: There were 13 because Ephraim and Manasseh, Joseph doesn't get a tribe. Yes, he gets two. He gets two. And if you, if you look at num- where they enumerate the 12 tribes of Israel, the the list does not always include the same 12 names. Mm-hmm. And it depends whether the Levites are included or whether both Ephraim and Manasseh are included. In this case, they're listed as a half-tribe. All right.
3: How is a half-tribe defined?
2: Well, it's a bit like... I'll talk to Pluto about that. How is a minor planet <laughs> Yeah.
1: Uh, Anyway, I'll carry on with the rest of the text. With him, they sent 10 of the chief men, one for each of the tribes of Israel, each the head of a family division among the Israelite clans. When they got to Gilead, to Reuben, Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh, they said to them, the whole assembly of the Lord says, how could you break faith with the God of Israel like this? How could you turn away from the Lord and build yourselves an altar in rebellion against him now? Was not the son of Peor enough for us? Up to this very day, we've not cleansed ourselves from that sin, even though a plague fell on the community of the Lord. And are you now turning away from the Lord?
3: If you rebel against the Lord today, tomorrow he will be angry with the whole community of Israel. If the land you possess is defiled, come over to the Lord's land where the Lord's tabernacle stands and share the land with us. But do not rebel against the Lord or against us by building an altar for yourselves other than the altar of the Lord our God. When Achan, son of Zerah, was unfaithful in regard to the devoted things, did not the wrath come on the whole community of Israel? He was not the only one who died for his sin.
2: Then the people of Reuben, Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh answered the heads of the clans of Israel, The Lord, the Mighty One, is God. The Lord, the Mighty One, is God. He knows the truth. And may Israel know it too. We have not built the altar in treacherous rebellion against the Lord. If we have done so, do not spare our lives this day. If we have built an altar for ourselves to turn away from the Lord or to offer burnt offerings or grain offerings or peace offerings, may the Lord himself punish us. The truth is, we have built this altar because we fear that in the future your descendants will say to ours, What right do you have to worship the Lord, the God of Israel? The Lord has placed the Jordan River as a barrier between our people and you people of Reuben and Gad. You have no claim to the Lord. So your descendants may prevent our descendants from worshipping the Lord. So we decided to build the altar, not for burnt offerings or sacrifices, but as a memorial. It will remind our descendants and your descendants that we too have the right to worship the Lord at his sanctuary with our burnt offerings, sacrifices and peace offerings. Then your descendants will not be able to say to ours, you have no claim to the Lord.
0: And we thought, if this should be said to us or our descendants in time to come, we should say, behold, The copy of the altar of the Lord which our fathers made not for burnt offerings nor for sacrifice but to be a witness between us and you. Far be it from us that we should rebel against the Lord and turn away this day from following the Lord by building an altar for burnt offering, grain offering or sacrifice other than the altar of the Lord our God that stands before his tabernacle.
1: When Phineas the priest and the leaders of the community, the heads of the clans of the Israelites, heard what Reuben, Gad and Manasseh had to say they were pleased. And Phinehas, son of Eliezer the priest, said to Reuben, Gad, and Manasseh, Today we know that the Lord is with us, because you have not acted unfaithfully toward the Lord in this matter. Now you have rescued the Israelites from the Lord's hand. That is a fascinating finish, isn't it? Because (laughs) uh, they were going to war for the wrong reason. And they realize that the... uh, that the tribes on the other side of the river have actually saved them from doing the wrong thing and saved them, rescued them from the Lord's hand. Um...
3: Yeah. yeah, yes,
0: from from their
3: descendants committing this injustice.
0: It's not just them, Ken. It's when the word comes back to the other ten tribes when these important people have returned. Uh, the report oh, yes. was the report was good in the eyes of the people of Israel, and the people of Israel blessed. God, and spoke no more of making war against them to destroy the land where the people of Reuben and the people of Gad were settled. The people of Reuben and the people of Gad called the altar witness. Ah. For it's a witness before us that the Lord is God.
1: Mm. One of the dangers here, seems to me, and we do it in religious ways all the time, uh, we make assumptions about other people's motivations. And... Mm. It it leads to error so easily. We can be so uh, certain about uh, our conclusions about what other people uh, must be doing and thinking. And so often that reveals more about us than it does about them. Uh, we see somebody yeah. else doing something and say... Well, if I was going to do that, then I would have the wrong motivation, and I'm do I would be doing the wrong thing. Therefore, they must have the wrong motivation, and they must be doing the wrong
0: yeah. thing. Yeah, yeah. There, there's a fascinating example I heard recently. Ken uh, Elon Musk, who's not a person that I uh, necessarily look up to in all ways, but but does have some demonstrable skills in in innovative engineering, um, was describing a problem he had with. The Model Three production line of the car that the electric car that his company makes, and there was a fiberglass mat between the battery and the floor plan floor pan of the car, um, on which millions of dollars had been spent trying to automate the installation of this fiberglass mat, and it was a very tricky operation, and it was time consuming to do it by hand, and it was proving very difficult to automate with a robot, and. In desperation, he, he apparently said to the to the pe- to the battery engineers, um, "You know, why do we need this? Is it is it fire mitigation? And you know, it's just fire containment?" They said, "Oh no, no, no! We we don't need it at all. The battery is perfectly fine. Uh, it's for noise reduction." So Elon Musk went over to his noise re- reduction engineers and asked them what it was for, and they said, "Oh, it's to mitigate the fire risk." Mm-hmm. And so he just pulled it out <laughs> and, and, and scrapped the, scrapped the production line. No one had bothered to check.
3: I think it, it is a really good illustration of that that whole thing. Where I, I'm reminded of the, the the statement in the Bible that you know man man sees what's on the outside, but God sees mm. the heart. You know, we sort of we focus on the God sees the heart part of that. We don't necessarily think enough, as we should, about man does not see the heart. Mm. And we're very quick to ascribe motivations to others when in reality we have no idea what their motivations are because we don't know what's going on in their head. Now, now, for, for, for all of you guys here and for all the listeners at home, an exercise in honest introspection, think of a political public figure that you hate Think of something they said or did that made you extremely angry. Do you know why they did it? Chances are they
1: did it because they thought it was the right thing to do.
3: That is generally why most people do things. But the point is simply, if you're honest with yourself, you may have some idea, you may have a theory about why someone did something, but none of us know the hearts of others. Even our very closest friends, and family. The closest relationships we have Mm. are the ones in which we start after many years of knowing each other to gain an understanding of each other's hearts. Mm. There is no way you can know the motivations of a complete stranger. There just Mm. isn't, you know? So we should stop the the lesson being, you know, and Cam illustrated perfectly, we should stop going around thinking we know what other people,
2: Mm. why other people
3: do what they do because Mm. we don't know and we shouldn't judge others.
2: Mm. There's another, uh, Cam, this story, you're right. It's not a story that I can remember having encountered. So thanks for bringing our attention to it. And it's got my brain buzzing in a million different directions at once. I was going to pose you all with the question. So what are the Jordan rivers that our communities experience today that divide the community into one side and the other side? But then, before I could even ask it, my brain immediately ran off and found a couple. Uh, I have heard some people being told, "Well, uh, if you want to think that about the origin of the of the Earth and how old it is, then why don't you go and become a Lutheran? They're nice people." And and perhaps the person is actually saying, "Well, well, no." I might be on the other side of this Jordan, but I'm actually I'm still part of I'm worshiping the same God. I'm part of your community, and I'm I'm actually doing a bit of work to build an altar to remind everyone that although I'm on the mm. other side of the river, I'm I'm actually still part of this community, and I'm still worshiping the same God. And I've also heard people say similar things to uh, practicing homosexuals. I've I've heard rumors that there are people who feel that if you If you do want to admit women to the same levels of ecclesiastical authority as you admit men, then maybe you should go and start your own church somewhere. But aren't these things all Jordan Rivers in which the person making the accusatory um, opening move of war is doing so on the basis of a very honest and earnest attempt to stand up for what they see as being important instruction by God? But they have, in fact, missed the greater importance mm. um, of of the of the unity and the shared inheritance and the shared blessing. And yeah. they've they've misunderstood, they've misunderstood the the direction or the motivation um, of those of those half tribes on the <laughs> this, other side of the Jordan. This
3: is this is actually a really really good. Um, broad point, something that I've thought about a lot in recent years. The Israelites here were ready to go to war, very ready to go to war. They were prepared to go to war to 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 fix this problem that they had seen occurring. Mm. You know, to right this injustice uh, or, or or to correct this wrong.
2: We've just read the scriptures, their scriptures mm. that they had. They they had good. Ground basis.
0: This is exactly the point. God's yeah. very clear about where where you are allowed to sacrifice and where you're not. And it's not just that they've built an altar, it's a big one. It's, it fascinates <laughs> me that they
3: the, the story implies, does it not, that it is a replica. Yeah. In in all details of the altar. Yeah. In in Jerusalem the one altar that you're allowed that you're supposed to worship God at. Yeah. It's it's yeah. an identical copy of that. So you can see why they got the wrong idea. But thank goodness they decided to talk first. Because, let me put it this way, they, they thought going to war was a way to solve this problem. Now, do you think that having a war on this with the Gadites and the Reubenites and the half-tribites would have had a better outcome than the one that we read in the...
0: Oh, there's yeah. not a cha- not a chance. No.
3: Not a chance. So, my question is, why do we, as people, as... Groups as tribes, you know, in in many modern ways, we are still quite tribal in the way we think and act sometimes. Why are we so keen to jump straight to, if not the actual practice, the language of warfare? Mm. I often think to myself, for example, about the easy way that we've just slipped into terms like the war on terror <laughs> or... Culture wars. Culture wars, me to me, seems seems to be a a uh, a very unnecessary um, escalation to to a state of conflict. The main characteristic of a war is that both sides suffer. Would yeah. Would, would you dispute that or no?
2: And and that and both sides experience and participate in dehumanisation.
3: Both sides suffer loss. Mm. Both sides inflict suffering on others, yeah and and thereby dehumanise themselves, stain themselves with with unethical actions. Very often, the conflict is not actually resolved because a generation or two later, uh, you know aggrieved people come seeking revenge. And there's no bigger example of that sort of thing than World War One and World War II, mm. although there are many other examples. Uh, one of which is presently unfolding in Afghanistan. So why, when it is not necessary to have a war, would you so earnestly jump straight to it without, for example, first having a culture conversation, a culture debate, a culture argument? Why jump <laughs> straight to culture war? Because it makes a good news headline, yeah. but it's actually an incredibly bad idea.
0: In, in this story, Luke, the people explain quite clearly why they've jumped straight to war, it's because they're very frightened of but, doing the wrong but thing. Cam,
3: they did not jump straight to war. They didn't. They're wiser than us. They talked first. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. They were prepared to go to war, but they went and talked with them first. And what an example for us to follow in the present day.
0: Yeah. Mm-hmm. The, the trouble is that I have to extend that example to people that I disagree with. Uh, because there are, some, there are some River Jordans, that, and we all have our own favourite one. And you know, it can be as silly as what colour the carpet should be when we refurbish the church.
1: Or or whether we should refurbish it at all. Or we'll find a new building.
3: <laughs> that that sounds like it's drawn from personal experience.
1: Wouldn't wouldn't know, Luke. Wouldn't know.
0: <laughs> we wouldn't know. And Luke, there's I've even known a church to have very deeply held many year, years later very strong feelings about which local charity should the church support. Uh, that's obviously something that is greatly deserving of huge amounts of strife. Uh, people who, my personal one at the moment, I, I feel reasonably strongly that uh, vaccination is a great way for, a, for with a very modest adoption of risk, uh, extend charity to our fellow humankind by minimising the risk to them. I think it's a great Christian duty to, to, to be vaccinated I know some people who disagree with me and um, hold their views very strongly including some people I found out in the last week that really puzzled me I couldn't quite work out why they were on the anti-vax bandwagon thankfully it's, it's not very many people but um, that, that's a River Jordan that's sort of been imposed by preference circumstances and um, it's very easy to cast ourselves as the half tribe of Manasseh and the Gadites and the Reubenites mm. uh, being mm. ill thought of it's much harder to imagine yourself as the culpable, you know, people doing the ill thinking.
3: And, and yet, I, I think it's not as hard as it could be, because how well, how how admirable do the Israelites appear in this story? They They were ready and willing. They were willing to go to war to protect what they thought was right, but they did not they, did, they, they, they had an idea, they had a theory about why the Gadites and the Reubenites were doing what they did, but they did not assume that their theory was correct until they had talked to them. And then after talking to them, they were satisfied with the joint understanding that they had established through dialogue, and hmm. the delegation was satisfied. They took that news back to the Israelites, and the Israelites were overjoyed that they didn't have to go to war. And they praised
1: God for saving them. from The interesting sin. part of that as well is, it? and it works on the other side, because uh, the, the Gadites also said, well, this is our purpose in doing it. Uh, we think this is a good and right thing. But if we're wrong about that, then you are clearly right to come and do what you were planning on doing. Hmm. Um, <laughs> uh, so, so both sides were prepared rare... to say, we can see where we could be wrong. Hmm.
3: it's a rare Old Testament story which in which everyone is applicable. <laughs> but I mean... In Nobody's context, actually killed it's, at it's, the end of the day. <laughs> yeah. it's, it's, it shows, you know, we often talk about the Israelites maybe a little bit disparagingly. Ah, look at all the times they, they didn't follow God. You know, that's a very, I think, a very wrong-headed way to look at these stories.
1: The, the other interesting thing about it too is uh, I, the importance of place. In worship. Uh, And and this Mm. comes out in Jesus' interaction with the uh, Samaritan uh, woman at the well. Um, And and she says, "Um, I can see you're a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Uh, So clearly the place of worship uh, is something that has a really uh, real significance. Uh, what are those places that have significance for us? And they may be geographical, physical locations in space. Or they might be times.
0: No, One of the things that separates, uh, I think, millennials and whatever's post-millennials from earlier generations is that they have much less attachment to place. Mm. And that itself is a division that's going to emerge in our church. Um, we have talked about arguments about what's the best thing to do with the church building. So, for instance, uh, my young friends who are pilots love flying. They love meeting with other pilots. They love organising fly-ins where they'll go to some interesting location. But they they don't see much value in in all the expense involved in, with maintaining a clubhouse at the airport. Why, why would you do that? Um, so uh, they're not, you know paying members of the era club. They don't turn up to the meetings. They're not that sort of central location doesn't doesn't seem to matter so much. So I, I, a separate discussion I would love to have is is what value does place have? What value will it have in in our sort of cultural expression of faith going forward. It's different different sort of angle uh, again to take on this. God God Moses, we were laughing about the fact that that Moses goes to some extent to cover all his bases. In, in the giving of this law, and it it doesn't work. There's a there's a new case turns up pretty soon.
3: Yes, well, I think that that's a, that's a familiar experience to anyone who's tried to cover all their bases in the design of <laughs> something. <Yeah>. But <laughs> is five minutes after after finishing it and knowing that you have con- considered every possible contingency, something unexpected <laughs> will happen.
1: Can, can I can I just make a little plug here before you continue that point, Cam and don't lose it because uh, it's a very good one. Um, uh, this topic is going to be the subject of the sermon at Warunga Church, or will have been the subject of the sermon at Warunga Church on the 23rd of October. Um, so, if you're interested in hearing uh, a- another exploration of some similar themes, uh, my son Ryan is uh, taking that sermon, and I think you would. Find oh, it interesting. Um, in any event, um, yes. now having put that little plug in, carry on.
0: Good, good. Uh, the The point I was going to make is that Moses doesn't cover all his bases, but that God does not step in to inform the community what to do in this in this new case, in this new situation. He he leaves it up to them to work it out, mm. and this 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 significantly affects how. You know, earlier in Deuteronomy, there was an injunction not to add or subtract from God's law. Mm. And but but so we're not to add or subtract from God's law. But here's a completely novel situation that the people have to try and work out what they're going to do. And, and it's a sort of extra case not included in God's law. I'm not sure if that counts as an addition or a subtraction uh it's something new anyway well
3: i the the law is unchanged in this story. the law says you you can only worship in this one place in these specific ways and uh, once everybody is satisfied that that is indeed what's going to happen. And, but it's interesting because both sides have to be satisfied that the law is being upheld, right? The Israelites have to be satisfied that the, the Reubenites and Gadites are not building a new altar to worship at. The Reubenites and the Gadites also want to be satisfied that the Israelites will let them, in for future generations, continue to go and worship at the one correct altar. So both sides... Are wanting to uphold the law, and once both sides are satisfied that the law will be upheld, the story concludes happily.
2: Mm. It's a good point. Yeah, I think that there's something really, really natural, and and I don't, I'm not saying this because I've, I can think of some reason why it's natural. I'm just saying it because I've observed it to be a very natural response for followers of God to try and jump to God's defence. Somehow we've got to defend God's truth. We've got to defend God's law. We've got to defend God's Sabbath or whatever it might be. Uh, In this case, it's the Israelites trying to jump to the defense of God's instruction about one place of worship and one altar at the tabernacle. Now, someone mentioned, but it was very quick in passing, their their motivation of, of fear. They are very concerned about some of their fairly... Freshly remembered at this point in the story of Joshua, examples of of where the the community suffered somewhat um, through through the poor choices of of a very small subset of people. So it may actually not be such a textbook example of them trying to defend God's truth. It may actually be that they're trying to preserve themselves. So I, I'm I'm interested in whether you whether you see it as one way or the other way.
0: It's a fine line there too, Locke, because if if um, if what sets us apart from other people is our particular nuanced understanding of what God's truth is, that gives us a great sense of self-importance, and in defending God's word, we are actually defending our, at least in, in defending what we believe God's instruction to be, we are in fact defending our own specialness.
3: Yes, I think that's a very good point, Cam, because it it is easy. It is easy to confuse defending God with defending us. Our particular culture or our history or our set of beliefs or our doctrines. I think we do, and I'm not speaking... In this case, I'm not speaking of any particular version of Adventism, conservative or liberal or anything else. I think we all do it. Um, we all tend to... Justify defending ourselves, our own points of view, as defending God. Mm-hmm. But to to your point, Locke about you know they they obvious they they had some fear of 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 you know punishment. Uh, I don't know that they'd make a distinction between fear and worship because I was looking at the translations as we read it, and some translations say fear and other translations say worship in the same place. Hmm. I think they, they probably wouldn't. You know, I, I'm, <laughs> I'm attempting to read the hearts of of people who are very stranger to me. But my <laughs> yeah. my best guess is that they would not see any inconsistency with being afraid of God punishing them and wanting to do the right thing in worshiping God.
1: And, no, but it still yeah. raises that. I mean, the the point's not just one of translation or semantics. The point is one of are uh, the natural human motivation of fear. Although I think your point is also a good one, that there's a clear connection between the fear of the consequences of not worshipping correctly and uh mm. the, the the worship itself.
3: Yes, yeah. and that that reminds me, Ken, and and it astonishes me that we've got this far without it, but um reminds me of something C. S. Lewis wrote uh at one point about about this specific topic, and he said something insightful as he usually does, and I can't remember the exact quote as I usually can't.
0: I'm poised with my collection of C.S. Lewis essays in front of me. So
3: something along the lines of saying it's still better to do the right thing for for a a bad reason uh, than it is to to not do the right thing, you know? Uh... Having a bad motivation is not necessarily an obstacle to worship. And in fact, it's usually the first step to worship. Yeah. Right? As as long as the bad motivation is putting you in the right direction, good motivations will follow later.
0: I, I can't put my finger on it, Luke, but I do have a Adrian Plass quote. So um, <laughs> our, our listeners with their bingo cards poised will have to, you know, abandon the C.S. Lewis square and jump to Adrian Plas. He he wrote a sketch once about an author who was who was wracked with uncertainty here i am i'm claiming to be a christian author and um uh i don't even know am i am i following god is this is am i doing what god wants um you know what if my motivations are all wrong what if i'm doing this because i'm doing it selfishly um and he's he's confiding in a friend and he's he he carries on in this in this way for a while and then his friend says yeah have you ever sent one of your kids down to the shop to pick up some food oh yeah 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 i sent sent so-and-so down to pick up some apples the other day yeah but did he have good good motivation was he doing it for the right reasons have you ever tasted an apple that was bought by someone with bad motivation <laughs> um so there, there is a sense in which none of us have perfect motivations and that uh and that god can still work uh through through what what he's got there's really interesting sort of way this played out in the New Testament. The disciples believed Christ would come and set up an earthly kingdom and they hoped for a good place at the table. But God was able to work with them. The Pharisees were playing a much more hypocritical game. There's, there's a passage where one of the Pharisees says, we've got to get rid of this guy because he will stir up a rebellion. And then what will happen? The Romans will come and take our temple away from us.
2: Hmm.
0: In other words, in other words, they also believed Christ would attempt to set up an earthly kingdom, but they didn't even believe... They, they had the wrong picture of the Messiah, but they didn't even have any faith in that wrong picture. They didn't believe it would happen. They didn't believe the rebellion would succeed. No, no, no. What's going to happen is he'll raise some rebellion, then the Romans will come and take our temple away from us. So... They they weren't even willing to act on what they did believe, uh, whereas at least at least Peter was willing to pull out his sword and he struck the servant and cut his ear off in the garden. So uh, and 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 at least with those particular Pharisees and Jewish leaders, God wasn't able to get them to to work. So it, it's an interesting example in the sense that our motivations seem simultaneously to matter and to not matter.
3: Mm. Yeah. Well, a further thought. On, on the sort of good motivations, you know, um, and the the Apple story triggered me on this. I mean, my, my daughter at the moment often has to be encouraged to do the right thing uh, through some form of incentive. Uh, no motivation. doubt she'll grow out of it. <laughs> well, here's my point, Ken. I do wonder if humans do really grow out of that very much. I, I was just sitting and thinking what are my motivations are my motivations really the quote-unquote right motivations if I'm yeah. being honest yeah. with myself
2: they're probably not you just want to have a slice of which is here, why
1: uh, and and there's this saying one of our little aphorisms yeah you know, it's the thought that counts and, and and I say no 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 it's not it's the action that counts Yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh was the action a good action or was the action a, a bad action now there is there, there is a way in which it is the thought that counts because if somebody does an act with a good motivation that turns out to have an unintended bad consequence then that's a basis on which <clears throat> we will excuse them that their that their intention was not bad yeah Ken,
3: I I actually understood that. I've I've always understood that statement differently. Mm. I thought that statement meant it's the thought you put into it that counts, which is quite different from it's the thought that counts as, well, as long as you thought about it, you didn't have to do anything. Because generally speaking, when you put more thought into something, the result,
1: the outcome is better. I thought that's what it meant. Well, it it means it's a much better saying if it means what you take it to mean, Luke.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I've always thought it to mean what you meant, Ken. Although hearing it uh, today. Uh, I did immediately wonder what is it that the thought is counting, <laughs> and why do we say, th- <laughs> why do we say that it's uh, the thought that counts instead of instead of the thought that sings or the thought that writes or the thought that speaks? Uh, uh, what it's about counting. Everybody's a well mathematician, and off.
1: Cameron, and counting it's is what maths is great.
0: <laughs> yeah, good. It's it's counting well, is what counts. Yeah.
3: So, uh, oh yeah. You should put that on the maths department door.
2: Well, we can at least admit that saying into the tautology club.
0: Yeah, exactly.
2: While while we're slightly unhinged, we probably should aim to wrap it up. Okay. Soon. Well, I
3: mean, <coughs> given given that we've gotten slightly unhinged, we probably should have wrapped up about five minutes. Ago. Yes.
0: Well, I'm going to wrap it up by by observing that there's one dimension of this that we have not discussed, and that is that. Both, according to the uh, precept set out in Deuteronomy and the practice described in Joshua, all of us are in error. Indeed, be- because none of us travel to Jerusalem to sacrifice.
3: Well, well, none of us sacrifice at all.
0: Oh, well, doubly in error. But when it comes to the place thing in particular, mm-hmm. we 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 don't. So we uphold fairly serious. Um, substantive changes to God's instruction, and uh, that is food for thought. Uh, this was something that they took very seriously. They were willing to go to war for it, and they would look. They would look at us today and not recognise us as worshippers of the same God. Mm. And uh, when you flip that round and you say, what What is it that future generations will be doing and look back on us and and what will the differences be? How much more truth is there still to show us? How much of what we believe to be God's, you know, everlasting law, everlasting unchanging set in stone law? How much of it will be seen in in further and brighter light, to to need adaptation or revision? And um, at least in this story, uh, God seems to invite His people to be very actively involved in that process of of talking amongst themselves. And, and, and his working in this in this case doesn't happen through sort of divine decree, but through the community of his people on earth. So I mean, there's lots of food for thought there.
1: Well, I think that's a, that's a prayer can. Uh, reveal, Lord, the ways in which we are uh, stuck in traditions that do not honor you. Uh, reveal to us the new ways. Uh, that you would uh, have us uh, worship uh, the witness that we should have uh, and be those memorials of you uh, that are to be revealed in new ways and in new light.
0: Mm-hmm. Thank you, Ken. Uh, please, as always, if you have any thoughts, uh, email them to us at sabbathschoolfromhome at gmail.com and join us again next week as we dive. Uh, deeper into uh, some of the other lost chapters of Deuteronomy. (laughs)